Well, good morning again. Welcome to First Baptist Church. It is so good to see all of your smiling faces. And of course, we are grateful for all of those of you who have decided to join us this morning through the wonder of the interweb. So welcome. We are so glad to have you. And we do trust and pray that God speaks to you in the way that you need to hear from him today. As we get started this morning, I want to start off by telling you two stories Two stories. Well, actually, one is an old corny joke, and the other is a true story from my own life. But they are going to uh, converge, we'll say, at a point, and, and there will be a purpose at the end as we go throughout. So I want you to think about these stories th this morning as we go through our passage. Perhaps you've heard uh, this joke or one like it. A man walks into a restaurant. He sits down and he says, I'll take the soup of the day, waiter. And the waiter comes out and brings him a bowl of soup and places this huge, delicious bowl of soup. In my mind, it's potato because that's the best soup. And so places a delicious bowl of potato soup before the man and begins to walk away. And the man says, excuse me, excuse me, waiter. There is a fly in my soup. To which the waiter replies, don't worry, sir. How much soup can a fly drink? <laughs> now, we have possibly been in, in that situation. Actually, that, that story was, or me referencing that, was inspired by a, a real-world circumstance this week with a drink that I had that had a fly in it. And I had to make a business decision. Do I throw out the whole drink because the fly was in it, or do I, like a normal human being, scoop the fly out and go on with my business? You can guess by what I, how I prefaced that, that I just took the fly out and went on with my day, right? It's a fly in your drink. It is a a fly in your soup, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal, right? But what would be a big deal? Like what would be one of those things that we really should worry about? So in the same realm of food service, I worked for some period of time when I, actually it was only like six months because I hated it, but for six months when I was in high school, I worked for a Burger King. And while working at, you know, Burger King, right, your way right away, and, and I didn't get to work the cash register up front very often. I was a lowly high school student, so they put me in the back. So I worked the broiler. And if you don't know how the broiler at Burger King works, it's not like a it's not a grill like you would think of. You don't just like throw it onto the grill and, and grill the patty and then flip it over and then take it out. It actually is a lot more like the, the cooking process you see when you're at a pizza hut. You take the raw patties or frozen patties, if you will, and you throw them on a metal conveyor belt at one side of the broiler. And then it takes it through this long oven-like thing where there are flames shooting up from the bottom and the top, shooting down and up, to like get that nice flame cooked flavor that we all love at Burger King, or that I love at Burger King. And so they, they, it broils it. And so they, it takes it from one end of the machine to the other end. And usually, most of the time, by the time it gets from this end to that end, it's cooked and it's ready for consumption. Doesn't always work, but most of the time, right? Most of the time. Occasionally though, as is the case with any oven, Things happen and things fall through the slats and end up in the bottom of that oven or the broiler as the case may be. And so it requires every once in a while, for us, it would require for us to turn off the broiler, open it up and start cleaning that bad boy out. Now, 
I don't know if you've ever heard this, the phrase, it's better to not see behind the curtain. Y'all heard that phrase before? Sometimes, and I would say almost any time it deals with a fast food restaurant, when you see behind the curtain, it's ruined for you forever. And this was one of those cases. So we're cleaning out the, the broiler. I'm scooping stuff out, and it had this, like, metal squeegee type thing that you reached in, and you pulled the stuff out, and then you normally didn't, like, clean it good because, as, as, as you know, with a grill, part of the flavor of the food comes from the nasty griminess of the grill. It's, the, it's baked into the oven itself, right? So you don't want to clean too much if you don't have to. So we would do just enough that if the health department was to come, they wouldn't fail us, right? Just enough. That's not the bad part. So we're reaching and we're pulling this stuff out and I looked at back in the, in the broiler as I'm cleaning and, and I see what I think is what looks like a rolled up burger that has fallen through, which happened from time to time, and got stuck in there. So I reach back and it is like rock solid petrified. So I knock it loose and I pull it out and as I pull it out, I realize that maybe that's not a burger because Burgers don't have tails. <laughs> so I'm curious, right? So I, I reach down in there with my begloved hand and I grab what I think is the tail and I pull out a petrified rat. Now, God only knows how long that rat had been in there. Long enough that any fluid that had once been in that body had been baked into dozens of flame royal burgers over the, the months, preceding months. Now, when one finds, when one finds a rat in the broiler, that is something that one must deal with. That was, that was the indicator that we needed to do a full, thorough, bleach-infused, power washer-used cleaning of the broiler. And we did. We cleaned that thing out because there is a difference between a fly in your soup and a rat in the broiler. <laughs> Would we agree with that? I mean, there's a big difference with that. Now, my apologies to all of those of you in the room for whom I have ruined Burger King for at least a couple of months, because let's be honest, we're all going back, <laughs> right? A petrified rodent in the cooking apparatus is a significant issue, though. That's a, that's a major health code concern. That is a shut the restaurant down, there's no longer a Hardee's in Seymour, Indiana health code issue. <laughs> and it brings, it brings into focus how small the first issue is. Honestly, most of us in our lives and most of the issues that we face, if we're honest about it, could be categorized to some degree as fly in the soup issues. But how often do we take what should be a fly in the soup issue, just scoop it off, eat the soup and go on with your business? How often do we take that issue and make it a rodent in the broiler issue? I would argue more often than not. Too often, at least, right? At least for me. For me, it is a daily struggle to not take small, trivial issues and make them massive. We struggle to discern the difference. 
And I think we see a clear example of that in Esther chapter 5 and 6. Now we're going to start this morning in Esther chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Now don't worry, they're shorter chapters, but we are going to read from chapter 5, starting in verse 9. So you're going to need to skip ahead there for me, Dougie. Um, Starting in verse 9. So it says this. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that Mordecai neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, about his many sons and and all the ways that the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I am the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all of this, all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Like, how does that become the natural response to that? But we'll get back to that in a second. (laughs) Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman. And he had the pole set up. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. And it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, the attendants answered. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had just set up for him. His attendants answered, well, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, (laughs) who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, oh, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head, and then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. 
Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Now there is a lot going on in this story. There's a whole lot of irony going on in this story. And so let's take a time to look at it and let's, let's consider some things that we might learn again from Haman and Mordecai in their interactions. The, the overriding thing, and, and the truth is, this, this may be an overriding thing that I see, a theme, if you will, that I see throughout the book of Esther that in the past I've overlooked. When, when you read the book of Esther, you tend to fixate on the, who knows, God may have brought you to this for such a time as this. And that tends to be the quintessential passage for Esther, and everything else is just details surrounding that moment. And and. and, and validating the truth of that statement. And that's fair. That is fair. The book is, in fact, about Esther. But if you pay attention to some of the secondary and tertiary characters, there are other things that we can learn. And one of the things that I see through Haman is, is Haman is consistently fixated on the small things to the exclusion of the big things. And, and I would think that's something I know, let's just say that for me, I know this is something that I need to learn and do better about in my own life. Don't become so fixated on the bad that you fail to see and enjoy the good. Don't become so fixated on the bad that you fail to enjoy the good. Now we're going to jump back a little. I'm not going to read it, but we're going we're to summarize what has happened at the beginning of chapter 5. Right, chapter four, we just finished last week, and Esther makes the determination through prayer on both ends, right? There's a lot of fasting, a lot of prayer, and they determined that Esther is going to make this very risky, if not simple, mission to the king, where she's going to go request that, that the king take care of her people. So that's where we ended last week, with, with on pins and needles, what's going to happen to Esther? But we all know the story, right? That Esther goes and she, she makes herself available to the king. She stands in the doorway. The king sees her, extends his scepter to her, and she walks in. She holds this, this special dinner with only two honored guests, right? That's what the text tells us. And Haman himself tells us that at the beginning of, of what we read this morning in chapter and, and verse 9. That the king at Esther has held this great feast, this great banquet, and he alone was invited to this dinner with just the queen and the king. It's just Haman and the royals. It's funny how, as I was considering this, it was funny to me how we know the details of ancient stories, right? We, we know the end of this story. We, we can read ahead. We know how it ends. We know how things go. And so we know all of these details. But I think one of the things that does for us at times, whether it's reading in the Old Testament or the New, because we know intuitively from having read things what, where the story goes and what happens, we assume that we know information that the people in the story don't. Which is true sometimes, but not all the time. But a lot of times we read these stories and we assume that the people in it are just utter fools 
They, 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 they're incompetent, that they don't see what's going on, that they don't know. I assure you that if we know the historical context and the subtext of what's going on, they may not know the end, but they know the details of what's happening in that moment better than we do. And I think if Esther and Mordecai knew about the risk inherent for Esther, would it not be fair to assume that the king knew as well? Do we think for a second that the king was surprised that, that the king sees Esther and he's like, oh, this is no big deal. My wife just showed up. No, remember, this is a king who at the beginning of the book of Esther essentially exiles his wife because she refuses to do what he said to do. He knows the risks inherent. I mean, he may have even played a part in, in, in making the law. If he didn't play a part in making the law, there's actually reliefs in in the, the region where this would have taken place, where there are pictures in these reliefs of Darius, who is Xerxes' father, sitting on the throne, holding a scepter in one hand. And you know what's behind him in the picture? A guard with a big axe. Like they had pictures in the throne room sitting behind old Xerxes saying, if you come in unannounced, this is what's happening to you. Xerxes knew about the risks inherent in Esther's appearance. Now, why do I say that? Because it changes the way we see the narrative between Xerxes and Esther at the beginning of chapter 5. Esther dresses up in her royal dressings, it tells her royal robe. She's not just dressed in formal attire. This is official uniform. It's, it's the things that would have indicated her power and position as the queen. She's sending a message that, that she is the queen of Persia. And Xerxes sees her standing in the hall. She hasn't even approached the doorway yet. And Xerxes extends the, the, the scepter to her. And Xerxes asks two questions if we look back. Verse 3 of chapter 5. The king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? Now, that seems pretty benign to us. But inherent in the language is the idea of, what's wrong, Esther? What's your concern? What, what has so concerned you that you would come and risk this right now? You tell me what's wrong. And even his, his response after of, of I, you let me know what's wrong and I will give you whatever you want up to half of the kingdom is indicating that Esther, whatever's your problem, I'm going to fix it. I've got this, Esther. I'm going to take care of you. It tells us in the text that he delighted in her. He said, don't worry, baby. I'm, I'm going to take care of this. Now, I always thought when this, I don't know how you read these things, but I was taught to take the passage literally unless there was something that indicated you shouldn't. And so when I would read that, that a king would offer someone, hey, you tell me what you want up to half the kingdom and it's yours, I thought that literally meant you can have half the kingdom. Which, if that's me, right? And I come into the throne room and my plan was, hey, can you like not kill my people? And then I come into the room and the king's like, you tell me whatever you want, and you can have up to half my kingdom. Like, I'm taking that, right? I always wondered, why, why didn't someone immediately say, that's what I want, like, up to half the kingdom? Yep, exactly, done deal. 
Like, we see it a few times in the Bible, right? The most prominent is when, when the daughter of Herodotus is dancing scandalously before Herod, and Herod says to her, hey, you tell me whatever you want, and I will do it up to half the kingdom. And what does she ask for? I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. I'm taking half the kingdom. Like, why did no one ever take them up on that offer? You know why? Because that wasn't really the offer. This is, this is an example of us losing touch with an ancient idiom, a figure of speech, if you will. I will go to the moon and back for you, my love. Like when someone says that, they don't actually mean they would go to the moon and the back, right? Like I may have just ruined it for some of you. You're like, oh man, I thought my husband really loved me. No, he's just a liar, right? Like he's exaggeration. It's called hyperbole, folks. But we read it. Like, any of you ever thought that before? That you thought he was actually offering half the kingdom and Esther lowballed? Maybe it's just me. I'll take it. But, <laughs> but it's, it's making a clear point that, that, that King Xerxes understands the importance of, of, of Esther's request. Now, take that in stride, right? Like, we know that he's saying, whatever you want, I will do it for you. And what does Esther request of the king? Hey, come to dinner. What? I just offered you half the kingdom and you said come to dinner. Now that doesn't make any sense to me. Why is that your request? That's like the people, have you ever noticed on shows where people find a genie and they rub the lamp and they get three wishes and then they end up, you know, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to see this and so they just wasted a wish. Like it kind of seems like one of those things where you just wasted your shot there. Like you get one thing and you asked for dinner? But maybe there's more to it then. Maybe, again, this is something we're missing. Now, remember, we talked a few weeks ago in chapter 1 that dinners were in, in incredibly important affairs in Persian culture. And, and it's actually, you know, we, we know, again, context, we know that she's bringing in Haman because Haman's part of the problem. But on the face of it, there's something else that Haman and Xerxes would have assumed. Because who all is appearing in the first banquet we see at the beginning of Esther? Isn't it all the princes and all the nobles? And we know historically that they're having a council. This is a confab where they're all coming together to advise the king. So what it appears as here is Esther's got a really big problem. And she doesn't know how to solve it. So she says, Lord King, if I could meet with you and your top advisor, and I could talk through my issue... That would be great. And it actually gives us further confirmation. Well, how? Because it tells us in verse 5 that he brings Haman right away. They go and they have the, the dinner and the banquet's done. And as they're drinking wine in verse 6, wine is a course unto itself. Now, does anybody remember what I said about important decisions in the Persian Empire early on? That the, the only way Persians made important decisions is they made them drunk first and thought about it when they were sober to see if it was a good idea, or vice versa. So the fact that they're sitting around and imbibing wine is actually an indication that they are having an important consultation right now, that Esther is incredibly concerned, and the issue is so important that she needs the most powerful people in Persia to come help sort it out. This is the context. And this, I, 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 I summarize all this for this. That's why this is such a big deal to Haman. I mean, it would be cool to go to dinner with the king of England. I'd be about that. You know, I, 
I don't even care who's in the White House at the time. If I get an invite to the White House, I am going. I'm hanging out with the, first, the president and the first lady. I don't even care who it is. I'm going. That's like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. That's an honor. I don't care who it is. And, and so here we have Esther sitting together with the king, with Haman. And Haman, it's not lost on Haman that not only has he been invited to dinner, but he's in, been being asked for his opinion. And then Esther says, hey, you know, we're in the confab session. Hey, come back again tomorrow, and let's take a moment and sit on this, and then I'll tell you what I want. So what does the text tell us? Well, that brings us to where we are. It says that Haman walks out, and he's high in spirits. Haman is living high on life. Everything is good for Haman for two reasons. He's just been incredibly honored, and he's probably drunk. Here's what I found. Yeah, thank you, Siri. Why is it every time I say something that's somewhat questionable, the series like, I got you, friend. Anyways. So the queen decides she's going to air her concerns the next day, and Haman does not, the, the honor is not lost on Haman. He's leaving the palace, living high on life, and as soon as he gets to the door, his buzz is gone. Why? Because there at the gate, as always, is that pesky Mordecai, the one person in the kingdom that does not recognize how great Haman is. The one person in the empire who when all else, everybody else is doing the song and dance to honor him, the one person that refuses. And it says that Haman is furious. He is filled with rage. But somehow he keeps his cool in the moment. But then what does he do? He goes home and he lays it all out between his wife and his counselors. Now, something we got to understand. By any metric, any metric we want to use, Haman is living an exceptionally blessed life. Would we say that? I mean, life is pretty good for Haman. And Haman knows it, right? Tells us in the text that Haman goes home and he, he boasts to his wife he boasts in verses 10 through 12 about how great he has it. He tells his wife, look, I, and his friends, I am so rich. I am stupid rich. The text tells us he is paying two-thirds of the kingdom's taxes rich. This is a ridiculously, comically wealthy guy. Got it all says that he has many sons, which was the height of blessing, to not just have many sons or an heir and a spare, but to have tons of spares. And we know, we can read to the end, and we know that Haman, in fact, had 10 sons. And the king has honored and elevated him above all other nobles and officials. We know that at the beginning of the story that the king had seven officials who stood before the face of the king. That means they had immediate and unhindered access. The only place they couldn't go and just walk in the room was when the king was in the bedroom. Literally anywhere else they could just go walking in. He had unhindered access to the most powerful man on the planet at the time. And that man, the king, consistently honored and elevated how great Haman was. He had all the prestige, all the power, all the honor you could possibly want. So much so that everyone in the kingdom is expected when Haman is coming. You notice in this text that Mordecai didn't rise. 
When Mordecai, when, when Haman would come, the person was supposed to rise, and then as Haman went by, they were to kneel. Like, that's pretty awesome. Like, just kneeling would have been great. Just standing would be great. But the fact that you would have to do a dance every time someone walked into the room, that's pretty awesome. Like, that's power with the show. That's what Haman's got. Here he is coming out of this incredible banquet with Esther. And it says to us in verse 13, all of this, but, but, but all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as Haman the Jew is alive. Which brings me to a, a secondary point that I want you to remember today. We need to beware the buts. Beware the buts. Y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? When you're like, oh man, like work is going so good and I just, I got this amazing promotion and things are going pretty well. But, you know, they, there's this one person at work that I just don't work well. And if that person would get fired, it'd be the perfect job. But I don't even know that I can stand it because I gotta be around that jerk all day. Keep it to yourself, Gene. <laughs> or or you, you say, you know what? My family life is incredible. It could not be better. I've got the greatest kids and the greatest wife, but my house is old, and every time I turn around, I've got to fix something. Every time I come downstairs, there's a to-do list, and I don't even know how to handle it anymore. Now, I can keep going, right? But, but you can fill in the own but, your own butts for yourself. You, you know your butts, right? That everything is great, but I can't enjoy it because this one thing. Now, we know for a fact that Haman's butt is really not that big of a deal, is it? Why do we know that? Because we can look back to when it all starts out and Haman first gets furious. And the fact is that it was so inconsequential that Potentially years have passed and Haman never noticed. Like it was so small and so infinitesimal that Haman didn't notice until the homies came and said, Haman, I know things are great, but did you see this? Which actually makes me think of another thing in the moment. Like perhaps sometimes the issue isn't initially ourselves, but that we've just got terrible friends. Like I say that kind of ingesting, but you know, I know that I've been that friend sometimes, right? Like maybe a little bit of it is just that we're jealous. We see the great thing that someone else has and they come to us and they're telling us excitedly how wonderful that is. And in our minds, we're just a little bit salty that that didn't happen to us. We can't enjoy our blessings because of their blessings. And so as they're telling us, we're like, well, yeah, that's great. But have you thought about this thing? I mean, it's great, but it's not that great. You know, I've seen better, seen more exciting. I, people have had it better than you. Like, it's pretty good, but it could be way better if this thing didn't happen. Haman is just, he, he is ate up with this. I, I can get no satisfaction because of this thing. This one guy who won't stand, who won't kneel, who won't do the song and dance every time I come in front of him, 
He's ruining my life. Really? How often do we fall into the same trap as Haman? I mean, this is 100 on the spectrum we started with this morning, right? Fly in the soup, rodent in the broiler, right? This is way over in the fly in the soup issues, right? This is, this is not a big deal. This is not a rodent in the broiler. This is a fly in the soup. But, but for Haman, it is inconscionable. It is, he cannot ignore it. He cannot move past it. It is ruining his life. How often do we do this? We count our blessings and we name them one by one only to push them to the side in favor of fixation on one perceived blemish amongst all of the blessings. Anyone in this room like resonating with me this morning or am I on my own? Have any of you been there where you can count dozens of blessings, but you cannot enjoy them? They are ash and dust in your mouth because one little thing is out of place. Maybe it's even a medium thing, but how does one little thing or one medium thing counter all of the amazing things in our lives? But they do. It has a way of poisoning our hearts and our minds. Which brings us to a, a, beyond the don't do that, brings us to a second thing. We need to be careful with how we respond to those things. Because the efforts we make to eliminate issues often escalates them. At least that's the way it seems a lot of times in my life. And maybe often is a bit much. But, but I would say it's with enough regularity that there needs to be caution taken. That the efforts we make to stop one issue often start another causes a crescendo, this cascade of just bad. Since Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman, notice what Haman's crack team of advisors recommend. Kill him. Right, he won't bow. He won't kneel. That's terrible. Right, you're right. He's got to go. So kill him and then go enjoy dinner. Like that's literally what it says. Just kill him brutally in the morning, and then by the afternoon, you can get yourself ready to go to this formal dinner with the queen and king. How is that the advice? Haman's like, sounds good, yes. Now, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty excessive, like everything in the book of Esther. It's, it's all exaggerated. It tells us that, that he wants him to, they say, hey, go and build this pole, 50 cubits. Now, if it doesn't translate in your Bible, that amounts to 75 feet tall. Go erect a pole as tall as a several-story building, and then we're going to impale Haman on it, or Mordecai on it, for everyone to see. Now, this is, your version may say that it, he, he constructed a gallows. That's, that's false. The Persians didn't hang people. The, the Persians built poles, big, tall, telephone pole type things, and they did one of two things with them. They either sharpened the top, and they put the person on the top, and then they grabbed them by the legs and the arms, and they yanked them down it until they hung on it to death. Or they took them to the top of the pole, they put their hands above them and their feet below them, and they nailed them to it and just let them die out in the, the open, stark naked. It was not a good thing. 
Like it's an excessive, embarrassing way to die. And Haman wants to put him up 75 feet. Why does he want to put him up 75 feet? This is important because the tables are going to turn. He wants him up 75 feet because is there any place in the city of Seymour you would not see a 75 foot pole? I mean, you might struggle with some trees, but just about everywhere, you're going to see, like if we put it in the center of city, you're going to be able to see that from pretty much everywhere. He wants to public, he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai, he wants to publicly humiliate him. Put a pin in that. Because I want us to jump to the end. We won't hit this in a minute here. But, but note that at the end of the story, when we get to chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, the same counselors who advised Haman to do this at the end are like, bro, you are in so much trouble. You cannot stand against this man. Like if we'd have known he was a Jew, we'd have never told you to do this. You are in so much trouble. They recognize, that, and the recognition of Mordecai's Jewish origins is actually another instance of where God's power and presence are implied. Remember, we talk about how, where's God? and This is where God is. The fact that these, oh, he's a, he's a part of the people of God? We don't mess with them. Like, you've done messed up, Aaron. This is a problem. Follows the, the pattern where the enemies of God recognize that fighting the Jews is a losing battle. And, and spoiler alert, and Ben Yee will talk about this next week. In his efforts to eliminate the inconvenience that was Mordecai, Haman ends up building the means of his own destruction. His efforts to eliminate an issue created the means that ended his own good life. When our desperation to eliminate issues, small issues, drives our decision-making process, our decisions are often at a minimum questionable, if not downright toxic and unwise. We need to slow down. We need to remember the lessons of last week we need to pray first, pray last, and pray always. Seek wise counsel. Emphasis on wise counsel. Not just people that are going to empathize with you and tell you what you want to hear, but people that are going to tell you what you need to hear. And act with grace in keeping with the example we see in Jesus. It's actually what we see in Mordecai. This man who humbly and consistently serves, which brings us to another point. We need to serve the Lord humbly and faithfully and trust God to turn things around. Serve the Lord humbly and faithfully and trust God to turn things around. If we were to get a theme song for, for the, this series of chapters, you know, it might be that song, to everything turn, turn, turn. Because everything's turning, like you can feel it in this passage, that things are just moving under, uh, underneath or over the top of what's going on, that God is arranging and orchestrating things behind the scenes in a way where, where this unseen hand is moving things that's going to bring about the desired an appropriate end. 
And we need to work on that. That's, that's one of the reasons that we take fly issues and we turn them into rodent in the broiler issues. Because sometimes, if we're being honest, we just don't trust that God is actually moving in our lives. We don't trust that God is actually going to come through for us. Or maybe we do trust that God's going to come through, but he's not doing it in our time, in our way. But God is clearly moving in this passage if we look. Now, we might actually look at the passage in chapter 6, and we might say, well, there's a whole bunch of coincidences that coalesces together in this passage. And I would say, coincidence? I think not. To be honest with you, I don't even know that I truly believe in coincidence. I mean, surely there are some things that are are lesser and minor that happen that are happenstance, but way too many things have happened in my life to bring things together in just the perfect way that it makes it difficult for me to believe that God's hand is not moving even in the little things. Let's think about what happens in this passage, right? We see at the beginning of our text today that that Xerxes, or chapter 6, that Xerxes is having trouble sleeping. So Xerxes just happens to have them go get the chronicle of the kings. And it just happens that his stewards open up to the page that talks about Mordecai saving the king. And it just so happens that the king had failed to honor Mordecai appropriately for his brave action. So it just so happens that the king decides that now is the perfect time to make that wrong right. But the king needs some counsel. Because as we know, King Xerxes was incredibly powerful, but he couldn't make a decision by himself. So he says, what princes or advisors are nearby? And it just happens, coincidentally, that in that moment, who should be entering the courtyard but Haman? So the king's like, quick, get Haman and bring him in here. Says, Haman, how should we honor someone that the king delights to honor? And it just so happens that Haman loves him so much that he comes out with a great plan to honor Haman. But it just happens that Haman was actually there to ask for the execution of Mordecai. But it just happens that the king intends to honor Mordecai, and it just happens that Haman is the one that has to honor publicly Mordecai, the man he came to publicly humiliate and kill. That's a lot of coincidence, folks. And maybe you would say, well, that's someone wrote that. Like an author could have sat down at a typewriter or with a quill and a feather pen, and they could have wrote that out, and they had time to think it out to make sure that those coincidences just happened to come together. Well, can I tell you a story from my own life? I'm gonna anyways. (laughs) Because it's actually a series of coincidences that has resulted in my family and I being here today and me standing in front of you. And I'm not just talking back to when you all started calling me. I'm talking back to before I even graduated college. We were seniors at Appalachian Bible College. And Robin was pregnant with Michaela. And it just happened that in my final, final semester, around March, Robin's blood pressure shot through the roof. So we went to the nurse, and the nurse sent us to the hospital in Beckley. Well, it just so happens that in Beckley, they don't have a neonatal intensive care unit. 
So they asked us, you have three options of where you can go. We can send you to Charlotte, we can send you to Pittsburgh, or we can send you to Charleston. Now, it just so happens that Charleston is on the way home to where our family lives. So we chose to go to Charleston. So we went to Charleston, and we were in the hospital for over a month with Robin in the bed and them working on her, trying to keep Michaela from being born too early. But Michaela couldn't be stopped. Even then, she was an eager beaver and had to get here right away. Had to make a dramatic entrance, if you will. And it just happens that on the day that Michaela was born, in a flurry of activity, that the nurse that was in charge that day in the neonatal intensive care unit attended a local Baptist church. And she was the chair of the deaconess board, and her husband was the chair of the deacon board. And that nurse, because she just happened to be there that day, became Michaela's nurse for the duration of her stay in the NICU. And it just so happens that a week before we ended up in the hospital, their church had fired their youth pastor. So it happens that they were looking for a youth pastor. Well, It just happens that because we were in the hospital, I was unable to go to any job interviews. So all of our job interviews back home fell through. So we ended up sitting in the dark NICU with no hope and nowhere to go. So one night we'd gone to dinner and it just so happened that our nurse was just as nosy as I am and started poking through my Bible. It just so happened there was a flyer for a youth activity that I had made for the youth group I was working with in Beckley, West Virginia. So she approached me the next day and said, hey, it just so happens that you're looking to be a youth pastor and we're looking for a youth pastor and it just so happens that I can set up an interview today. So I went and interviewed and I got hired within two weeks at Oakwood Baptist church. Now, why is that important? Because it just so happens that Oakwood Baptist Church is an American Baptist church. So within two years, I was ordained as an American Baptist pastor, which put me in the network, which just happened to put my resume in the bank that your search committee just happened to reach out to and found me several years later. Now, we can look all that. Tell me, That is not the hand of God. I believe with all of my heart that I am here because God moved. I don't think any of those things were coincidence. I wouldn't have chosen some of them, to be completely honest. There are many things in my life that I would not have chosen the path that I walked. But as I look back, I realized that even in the difficulties, those movements of the Spirit of God have brought me to a place of incredible blessing. There are burdens along the way. There have been plenty of flies in the soup. But God has brought about way abundantly more good things than bad things in my life. At some point, we have to own that what we see as coincidences stacking up are, in fact, not coincidences. 
We have to learn to see the invisible hand of God moving the pieces to provide for his people, to bring about his plan in your life and in mine. And I know it's not popular to say this, but even in the midst of struggles, even in the midst of terrible hurt and pain, I would say even in the midst of of rat in the, the broiler issues, that God is using those things to move us in a direction and that it's not coincidence, it is in fact divine providence. That God has a plan and a purpose for your life and that everything that happens is moving us in an attempt by God to direct us where he'd have us to go. The tables are always turning. And we see that in this text. There's a word I'd like to introduce you to today. It's written in your notes. Peripety. Everybody say that word. Peripety. Peripety is the sudden and unexpected reversal of events, and Esther is full of it. Esther is full of the the proverbial tables turning from beginning to end, and I won't go back through them, but we see the clearest example here with Mordecai and Haman, because it's not just the tables turning for one person, but it's the tables turning for both. It is God bringing down the proud and lifting up the humble. Haman can think of no one that the king would rather or would have more delight in honoring than himself. He comes up with the perfect plan. Past precedent would lead Haman to believe. Who else would he rather honor? I mean, he's the top executive in the kingdom. Who more? Who better? But Proverbs 29, 23 tells us that pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. In this case, God humbles the proud by using their own efforts to honor the humble. And Haman's first humiliation, but not his last, comes in the form of being tasked with honoring Mordecai publicly. Again, the irony abounds because why was Haman there in the first place? He was there to publicly humiliate in the highest form Mordecai. And God in his grace had been maneuvering things perfectly, turning the tables and turning it around so the man that desired to kill and humiliate Mordecai ended up being the very one tasked with honoring him publicly. And at the end, the tool that Haman had built for Mordecai's ultimate humiliation served to humiliate himself and his family. In verses, verse 12 of chapter 6, we see that Haman goes home in shame. And what does Mordecai do? And I think this is important. I don't want us to miss this. Haman, all Haman can think about is himself. And all Haman can think about is his own honor. And so when Haman is shamed, what does Haman do? He runs home with his head in his hands, with his head covered in shame. What does Mordecai do, though? Mordecai goes back to work. Mordecai goes back to his post, serving the king, doing what he'd been tasked with. There's a lesson to be learned there, is there not? Like even even in his greatest moment of honor, Mordecai is still humble, still faithful. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. 
And oftentimes that's what needs to happen in our own lives rather than stressing about the small stuff, rather than than scurrying around trying to fix all of the little things that aren't perfect in our lives. We need to, to take a step back, take a breath, and give space for God to do what God alone does. We see that in the life of Mordecai. How different might this story have been if Haman had just let it go and enjoyed all the blessings that God had given him. I mean, the story would have been really short, wouldn't it? Like at the very beginning, when Haman had been honored, and he learns from his friends, so-called, that one guy is not honoring him, if he'd have been like, whatever, he's a chump, and just moved on, it'd have been a pretty short book. I mean, the story wouldn't have worked. But in truth, Haman becomes a primary character because he cannot let it go, ever. Haman, in his life, in every turn, the fly in the soup becomes a rodent in the broiler. And again, I wonder how often do we do that in our own lives? And is it not a pride thing that says to us that I am too good to scoop out the fly and eat the soup? I get we paid for it, so I understand restaurants should do better. But is it not a pride thing? I paid for this. I deserve better. Like, is it, is it not pride that, that, that causes us to refuse to endure small inconveniences or small indignities in our, in our experiences with others? Is it, not, is it not our own pride that makes us think that we've got to fix it on our own, that we've got, to, we've got to deal with this and we've got to take care of every little thing? Trust requires humility. And we need to learn to discern the difference and say, you know what, God? This is an inconvenience and I don't enjoy it. It grosses me out a little bit. It makes me sick to my stomach, Lord. And I'm struggling to find satisfaction in this moment. But God, I am going to trust you and I am going to look around and I'm going to see the blessings and I am going to let them obscure these small issues in our lives. God is so good to us. Is he not? God consistently moving and bringing about his plan and purpose and there are difficulties in the moment. But even in the darkest days, there is light to be found. May we learn to see the blessings May we allow them to become the focal point of our lives. May we humbly receive from the Lord's hand what he offers. And may we trust that he is turning things around for our good and for his glory and his time. Stop making flies in the soup into rodents in the broiler. Father God, I pray that you would work and move in our lives according to your plan and your purpose and your timing. God, forgive us for the times that we mitigate and minimize and trivialize the great things, the many blessings that you have offered and given. And God, I pray that you would help us to become all the more aware of all of the things that you have done for us, for your power, your purpose and plan, working and moving for our good and for your glory. God, help us to be humble in heart and faithful in service, gracious in the midst of indignity, 
and loving in the face of hate. Help us to shine like lights in a darkened sky. May we give you all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.